You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Nehemiah chapter 2. That's where we're going to be tonight, Nehemiah chapter 2. And as you turn there, we'll go ahead and stand out of respect as we read God's Word, Nehemiah chapter 2. My Apple Watch just told, just told me, you can still do it. So apparently I haven't exercised enough today. So maybe by the end of this, I'll have all my rings closed. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 2. I don't know why it's buzzing me right now, but... Nehemiah chapter 2... We'll read uh, just the last, well, let's see. Let's read from verse 11 down through the end of the chapter. Nehemiah 2, verse 11, it says, So I came to Jerusalem, it was there three days, and I arose in the night, I and some few men with me, neither told I any man what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Neither was there any beast with me save the beast that I rode upon, And I went out by night by the gate of the valley, even before the dragon well, into the dung port, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and the gates thereof were consumed with fire. Then I went on to the gate of the fountain and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the beast that was under me to pass. Then went I up in the night by the brook and viewed the wall and turned back and entered by the gate of the valley. And so returned. And the rulers knew not whither I went or what I did, neither had I as yet told it to the Jews, nor to the priests, nor to the nobles, nor to the rulers, nor to the rest that did the work. And just as a quick review, Nehemiah spends three days surveying Jerusalem. If he's going to present a plan to the people in rebuilding the wall, he wants to make sure he's given it thought. He wants to make sure he's got a solid plan before he presents it. And at this point, he believes he does. In verse 17, it says, Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But, you always know that's coming. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, They laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem." What a great answer. And I'd like to really focus on Nehemiah's answer to the doubters. And if I was to title this tonight, this is one of the longer, maybe more creative titles that I've come up with. Um, Fact and faith over feelings and fear. Fact and faith over feelings and fear. I think you'll see why I named it that. Here in a little bit, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, we are grateful. We're so grateful. I'm personally thankful for your day, the Lord's day. And I'm thankful that you have proven that you still work in people's hearts. I'm thankful that you uh, have given us um, a church family full of loving people that want to serve you, want to do right, are willing to come out even on a Sunday evening when so many other things could be done tonight and yet they're here and they're giving you attention and I pray that our time together would not be wasted that you would help us to see a truth tonight that makes a difference Lord we love you we pray that you bless the reading of your word in Jesus name amen thank you you can be seated 
I guess I'm full of basketball illustrations today because I'm going to use another one tonight. And just so you know, it's not because I'm good at basketball. Um, I'll probably prove that to some of you at some point. Uh, I like basketball, but on my mind, as I was preparing this message, it came to my mind um, the, a movie that I saw, and I, and I don't like to use movies as illustrations either, um, but there, there's a scene in a movie from the 80s that I remember as a kid watching, and the movie is called Hoosiers. And Hoosiers is about a small-town basketball team from the town, and you can't even really call it a city. It's a town called Hickory, Indiana. And maybe you're familiar with this story. It's based on actually a a true story of a basketball team in the 1950s um, called Milan High School from there in the state of Indiana. And this this school, Milan High School, I think the student population was about 160. But in the 50s, this school from a small town in Indiana was so good for for a couple of years, but one year... They made it all the way into and through the state tournament. And in the state tournament, they played one of the the urban powerhouses from, I think it was Muncie, Indiana, and beat this large city school in the state championship game back when they had one class for everybody. So the small schools, the big schools, everybody was in one division and everybody played each other. So back then, the small schools very rarely had long-term success because they would go against the large city schools. Well, the, 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 the movie Hoosiers was based on the story of this high school loosely, and it's, it was based in a, in a town called Hickory, Indiana, and they got a coach that came in, and he had a checkered past, you know, all the, all the movie drama that they bring in. Uh, but he was very good at coaching basketball, so good, in fact, that the same thing that happened to, in Milan High School in the 1950s happens in this story. And it's in, it, they, they make it through the, the county and the sectionals and the regionals, and they eventually get to the state tournament. They win all their games. They're preparing for the state championship against one of the large city schools. And I remember the scene. The coach walks the basketball team into this giant arena. And, of course, they played in a small-town gym. I mean, barely room for anybody to sit and really just a, just a building with a couple of rims and baskets, and that's all it was. Well, now they're in an arena that seats thousands of people. And they walk in, and as they walk in, the, all the players, you know, they're just looking around, trying to soak it all in that, that they're going to be playing a basketball game in this arena and, and, in a, and I just love this scene because uh, the coach pulls out a tape measure. And maybe you've seen the scene. He pulls out a tape measure and he starts at the free throw line. And he has one of the men, the, the players, take it to the backboard. And he measures the distance from the free throw line to the backboard. And he asks the, the, the player, what's the distance? And he says, 15 feet. And then he has one of the small players get on one of the big guy's shoulders and take the tape measure up to the rim, and hold the tape measure at the rim, and drop it down to the ground. And he says, what's the measurement? Another player bends down and says, 10 feet. And he says, I believe that if you go to the gymnasium in Hickory, you'll find the exact same measurements. And what he was trying to get them to see is that that what seems so big and insurmountable and, and bigger than anything we've ever been. In reality, it measures the same. It's the same measurement at the rim. It's the same measurement from the free throw line to the backboard. It's all the same. It's just in a different setting. And that lesson, I think, is so good because sometimes a situation can seem so big and so daunting that we need to be reminded that our God is always the same size. He doesn't change. So in the small things and the big things, no matter what, and you can't measure God, but if you could, you would find he's always the same. And that Nehemiah was a man who has something to teach us about maintaining resolve when things seem too big for you. When it seems overwhelming and it seems too big and it seems daunting and you think, 
well, this situation is too big. I think Nehemiah helps us in, in something that he responds here with in verse 20. And he helps us to see that you can't allow challenges to surprise or deter you. They're going to come. In God's work, there will be challenges. In God's work, there will always be a verse that starts with but when Sanballat. There will always come things that come, come things that come our way and try to trip us up and try to take us down. And if you're not anticipating those things, they will probably take you down. If you think that, well, I bought into this, this mentality or philosophy that when you start serving God, everything gets easier and you don't have any problems, then you're sorely mistaken and you're in for a rude awakening. I'm thankful for those that have recently been saved and those that have recently joined our church and started serving and getting involved. And I'm not trying to be discouraging tonight, but I'm just letting you know there will be challenges. There will be times where you think, I must be doing something wrong because it's supposed to be easier than this. And in those moments, you have to remind yourself, no, no, it's not about easy or hard. These things will come and it's not about me doing wrong or doing right. This is just life. It doesn't all get easier when you start following God. And Nehemiah has some good things to teach us in that if you're not anticipating the challenge, it will probably take you down. Have you ever been walking and you couldn't see and you, there was a step or a curb that you didn't see and it took you down because you couldn't see it? I'm just going to tell on myself, one, one day I was here in the uh, sanctuary and the lights were off. And I was coming down from right here and I thought that I was on the bottom step and I took another step thinking I was on flat ground and I literally sprawled out about right here. And I stood up and kind of dusted myself off. There's nobody in here. It's dark. And nobody could see me. But I still looked around like, did anybody see that? <laughs> My daughter did that coming down from the choir this morning. I, I shouldn't have said that. Okay. Sometimes you miss a step. You don't see it. It trips you up. And I'm just telling you, especially those that haven't been doing it very long... If you think it's always going to be easy and nothing is going to come to try to work you over, you better open your eyes. Because when you're trying to do something that matters for God, there will be challenges. It's always good in a project or in planning to consider those potential, potential what I call them, I call them failure points. Where could this project fail if it could fail? It, 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 see, I had a, a teacher, a professor in college, and he used to say, assume the worst and you can't be disappointed. And I don't think that's a bad way to live. I'm not saying to be pessimistic. I'm saying be realistic. When you take anything on, don't assume it's all going to be easy and you won't have any troubles. Stop and think about the failure points. Think about where it could go wrong so that it, when it does go wrong... It doesn't take you down. You're prepared for it. I think Nehemiah was good at anticipating the difficulties. He had thought about the steps in the dark. He had thought ahead. He had planned ahead to so, such a point. He was so thoroughly prepared that when trouble came, he was ready. He knew it was coming. I mean, a few weeks ago, uh, we talked about in verse 10 how Sanballat and Tobiah, before Nehemiah ever got to Jerusalem... They were already upset. We talked about guaranteed trouble. That anytime you try to accomplish something for God, you're going to face trouble. It's guaranteed. And, and in that message, we talked about how anyone trying to do the right thing has a target on their back. We will face persecution. We should expect it. Nehemiah did. And it starts to get real at the end of the chapter. See, back when he had just come into Jerusalem, in verse 10, it said that it grieved them, Sanballat and Tobiah, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. Back then, in verse 10, they were just grieved. Back then, in verse 10, they were just upset that he was coming. Back there, in verse 10, they were just kind of like talking about it. Well, they hadn't actually done anything yet. Well, right after Nehemiah reveals his grand plan, Right after he had spent three days surveying the land. 
just after that he gets the plan together and, and he has all of the things laid out and he, he's about to present it to everybody, right after he does, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem come back. They don't waste any time trying to discourage not just Nehemiah, but all the people. Now they're, they're trash-talking Nehemiah and the Jews. He, he presents the plan, and it says but in verse 19, but when Sanballat, Tobiah, uh, the Ammonite, and Geshem, they heard it, it says they laughed us to scorn. So basically, I want you to imagine this. Nehemiah, it's like if this is all the, the, um, the workers in the wall, for the wall, Nehemiah is standing here, and he's saying, okay, here's the plan. Here's where I think we need to start. And here's where I think we need to go yet next. And over here, I'm going to have you do this and you do this. Here's what needs to happen. And everyone said, yes, let us rise up and build. And from the back, you hear saying, well, you guys can't do this. Who do you think you are? Way back in the back. They start making fun of the plan. They start making fun of the people. They start casting doubt on what's going on. You guys can't do that. Who do you think you are? There's not nearly enough of you. It's coming from the back. Can you hear it? They start making fun and laughing and scorning and mocking. And they start right away. They're still together. It says they laughed us to scorn. They're already started. These loud mouths, one of them's name is Sanballat. And Sanballat's a governor. Uh, uh, it says he's a Horonite, which means that he's a governor in Samaria. Now, if you know anything about the Samaritans, the Jews and the Samaritans, as we read in John 4, they have no dealing with each other. The Samaritans were those that when Babylon came and invaded Israel or Judah and took them away, there was some, a remnant left, and the remnant that was left that didn't get taken away, they, they started marrying all the tribes around them. So that's what the Samaritans are. In the Jews' eyes, um, they're, they're not a pure bred people. In the Jews' eyes, their blood has been tainted because they've married, intermarried with the tribes of the land, the heathen in the land. So if Sanballat is a Samaritan, you know there's already bad blood between him and the Jews. He can't stand the Jews. But we also have reason to believe that Sanballat came from a city in Moab. Now, if you know anything about the Moabites, then you know that them and the Jews weren't best friends uh, at all, either. The Moabites came because after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, Lot and his daughters had an incestuous relationship, and the Moabites were born from that. Moab was born. The Jews and the Moabites weren't friends. And there's another guy named Tobiah. And Tobiah, this, this second guy, we're, to, we're led to believe that Tobiah is an Ammonite. Well, it says he's an Ammonite. And he's an Ammonite. They were longtime enemies of the Jews as well. If you know about your Old Testament history, they had also come from that relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. They hated Israel to the point that when Israel was coming out of Egypt to go and take Canaan, the, the Ammonites said, you can't even pass through our land, so get away, go somewhere else. Enemies of, of God, enemies of God's people. This third guy named Geshem, he's an Arabian, and the Arabians came from Ishmael, uh, which is an offspring of Abraham. And just like the others, they had no love for Israel, they had no love for God, they had no love for God's people, and actually they're still enemies with God's people today. These three men, they're not happy, because they have some authority in the land. They're all governors of certain areas in the land. So for Jerusalem to come and be strengthened means that their own authority and influence will be weakened. They're not happy about this. So they start scorning. It says they laughed us to scorn. They were mocking them. Um, you, you know how it goes. You've heard it happen before. The word means to stammer, to repeatedly utter words of disdain like, like kids in the playground. You know, you know, you've seen this before when two kids, they're just going at each other and they're just pulling anything they can and looking at each other, well, well, your shoes, well, you know, but well, your hair, well, you can't even play basketball or, you know, I can beat you in a race or my dad can beat up your dad or whatever it is. You know, the, that old playground trash talk that, that goes on with kids. That's kind of what's happening here. They're just spewing out hatred. They're just making fun and mocking 
They're disdaining them. They're making fun of them. I mean, these are grown men. These are governors in the land. These aren't just random guys that came along. These are leaders in the land. They're, gover- they're the government, and they're acting like children. And I'm just thankful that we, our government doesn't act like children anymore. I mean, aren't you glad there's no name-calling and trash-talking in the Senate and the Congress anymore? Okay, no, that was tongue-in-cheek. Something's never changed, huh? So here's the things they're asking. They come and they're like, what is this thing that you're doing? Do you honestly, they're questioning their strength and ability. Do you honestly think that you can rebuild the walls? This place is is a trashed mess. I mean, the walls are broken down. There's no way you can do this. And then do you honestly think you can rebuild this wall? You'll never get it done. They're saying, for, you know, first of all, they're looking at him saying, I mean, there's only a few, a dozen of you. I mean, if you go to the next chapter, I, I think there's 38 listed or something like that. There's not very many. I mean, maybe about the number in this section right here or that section right there. There's not very many people at this meeting. I mean, it's not like you would come to this meeting and walk away thinking, oh, I mean, they're going to make a difference. I mean, they're going to get that wall done quick. No, they're looking around and they're saying, logically, I mean, look at you. They're, I mean, you don't even know what you're doing. There's hardly any of you. You're not going to get this done. And second of all, then, I mean, they're making fun of their number, making fun of their strength and ability, but they're also making fun of the plan. They're, they're, they're coming in and they're saying, there's no way you're going to get this done. What is this thing that you do? You know, if Nehemiah is an insecure leader at all, he might start to doubt himself. You know, have you ever done that before where you kind of sit down and say, okay, here's the plan, here's what we're doing, and someone's like, that's not going to work. I mean, every time I talk to my kids, that's how it, yeah. Like, here's the plan, kids, and they're like, what? I mean, no, I mean, if he's insecure, if he has any doubts at all, he's probably thinking, oh, well, maybe they're right. Uh, he start, they start to capitalize on his insecurities, then he may, he may start to doubt himself and backpedal, and, and he might start thinking, what if, we, what if we don't have enough help? You know, it's true, there's, there are not many, very many people here at this meeting. You know, what if he's thinking, well, what if it is a bad plan? I've never built a wall before, I'm not sure if this is a good plan or not. They're also then questioning their legitimacy. They're saying, will ye rebel against the king? I mean, if Nehemiah had, had not gotten permission, this would look like rebellion. And if they had, as a matter of fact, if you go back to Ezra 4, you find out that when they were trying to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple back in Ezra, that the enemies of the day, and this was over 100 years before, they had written a letter back to Babylon or Persia, and they had said, now, now they're rebelling against you. They're, they're going behind your back, king. You better come see what's going on. And at that point, the king had issued an edict and said, all building must stop. And so it had happened before where there had been an edict that stopped the work. I mean, Nehemiah obviously had gotten the king's permission. That edict had been revoked, but it doesn't mean that he wouldn't start doubting. I mean, in his mind, he might start thinking, what if the king does change his mind? In his mind, he might start thinking, what if they write letters to the king and they claim I'm rebelling? I'm not, but what if they do? What if they lie about me? I mean, this this could become a problem. Except that Nehemiah, I believe, he had been so thorough in his plan. I believe that he had already answered his critics in his mind. It did not catch him off guard. He wasn't walking down the steps at night just feeling his way through. He, He knew where the steps were. He had thought through it. He had already in his mind visualized the the failure points. And the reason that we know that is because he gives an extremely good answer. He gives a response that lets us see that he has already given thought to to what their criticisms would be. First, I I love the fact that he doesn't even bother answering their questions. You know, you ever have, uh, you have, you ever have just somebody ask just a really dumb question? And doesn't it feel good to just not even answer the question and move on? It does for me. Well, that's what he does. I mean, he knows he has authority from the king. 
even his enemies, they know. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they know that he has authority from the king. They're, they're scorners, but they're not ignorant. They know. They're just trying to get inside his head. They're just, this is just ancient trash talk. You know, they're just, they're just uh, it doesn't have to be legitimate. It doesn't have to make sense. They're just trying to plant seeds of doubt to see how confident Nehemiah really is. They're trying to create fear. That's what they're doing. But notice what happens. He responds to their attempts to create fear by speaking truth. Look at verse 20. Again, it says, Then answered I, and, uh, I them and said unto them, The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. Does it sound to you like he had already thought about what his answer was going to be? Because that's a great answer here. He basically says, listen, God is on our side. And if you can imagine, he's standing in front of the group of people. They've just laid out the plan, and now they've come and started making fun. And Nehemiah says, God is on our side. We're going to do this. There's nothing you can do to stop it. And when we finish this job and our walls are built, you're going to be on the outside, and we will be on the inside. You'll have no rights here. You'll have no inheritance when all is said and done, we'll be blessed by God and you'll have nothing to show for it. You own no property in, in Jerusalem. You have no right of citizenship here. You have no control. You don't own any land. And your forefathers are not even buried in this city. The Hebrew translation for Nehemiah's answer is this. Shut up and get out of here. For you parents that don't allow your kids to say shut up, I'm sorry, but it's in the Hebrew, I have to be true to the text. What a great answer. Nehemiah had no doubts. God's on their side, they were doing God's work, he, and he wasn't even listening to those that were opposed because God's plan is, is working. God's plan is happening. Folks, listen, there will always be a sand ballot. There will always be, and I don't mean in the form, just in the form of a person, although it could be, there will always, though, be that which causes you to doubt what you're doing for God. There will always be one. It could be another person. It could be someone that you know saying, are you sure you're supposed to raise your kids like that? I mean, it seems a little bit harsh. I've heard this before, and maybe you have too. Are you sure you're supposed to raise your kids like that? If you don't lighten up, you're just going to drive your kids away. And as soon as they turn 18, they're not even going to want to serve God anymore. I've heard it. My parents heard it about me and my sister and my brother too. And today, we're all serving God. But see, somebody's going to come along and they're gonna, parents, they're going to cause you to doubt. They're going to say, are you sure? Come on, that doesn't seem like the right way to raise your kids. They're not going to serve God if you do that. They're going to come along and say, having high standards in your personal life, in your dress or in your music or in the places you avoid or in the words that you say or in the activities that you're involved with, that seems pretty outdated. I mean, are you sure that's necessary? Come on. I mean, God looks on the outside or the inside. He doesn't care about the outside. There'll be other people that come and they cause doubt. You know, culture creates doubt, doesn't it? You just look around and you see what seems to make everyone else happy. And you think, well, what am I missing out on? I mean, sometimes, can we just be honest? Let's just be honest about it. Sometimes we look in the culture and we think, well, that doesn't seem so bad. I, I, wouldn't want to, I wouldn't mind trying that or I wouldn't mind having that. I'm not even talking about sinful things. I wouldn't mind going there on vacation. I wouldn't mind driving that truck. I mean, I wouldn't mind having that house. I, I wouldn't mind having a little bit more time for myself. It makes me wonder what I'm missing out on. They seem to be pretty happy. You hear the talk coming from the culture and young people especially, you've got to be careful because if you listen enough to the doubters, You'll start, to, uh, you'll start to question the importance and maybe even the existence of God. They start to plant doubts in your mind. 
and saying, I mean, are you sure that's legitimate? I mean, I don't know. I, I, it's been a couple thousand years and nothing's really happening. Their miracles aren't happening anymore. I mean, come on. If, if you can't see it, are you sure it's real? They're going to come and they're going to try to create doubt in your mind. You know what? Other people do it. Our culture does it. And we can create doubt in ourselves too. Sometimes I, I'm my own worst enemy and you are too. We question ourselves enough that we lose confidence in our positions and we're thinking so-and-so doesn't discipline their kids and they're just fine. Look at them. Maybe this isn't necessary. Or I'm disciplining my children as biblically as I know how, but it doesn't seem to be working. Do I need to adjust my tactics? You know, we can start to doubt based on whether or not we're getting immediate results. We can become pragmatic. Think, well, if it's not working, then I don't need to do it. And sometimes it can work like in our budget. And, and you're looking at your budget today and th- thinking, well, I don't see how this is going to work out. The numbers don't add up. Maybe God doesn't really expect me to give so much to the church. I mean, I have to pay my bills. I've got to live. My kids need groceries. And we start to create doubt and cast doubt in our own mind. Or maybe you're thinking, I spent a lot of time at church and my neighbors and my co-workers and family, they seem to be doing just fine without so much commitment. I mean, I sure wish I had some more me time during the weekend. Hey, these are things we think of, think about. We can doubt based on our past sometimes. You're thinking, I know what I've done. And I know how bad I am. And I know how low I've gotten. I know how bad it's been. And there's not somebody else casting doubt, and it's not the culture casting doubt. I mean, maybe it's Satan, but a lot of times we're our own worst enemies in that we know where we've been, and we know what we've done when nobody's looking, and we know how wicked we can be, and our own worst enemy is ourself. We're casting doubt on ourselves whether or not God could even use us anymore. Doubt comes from all places comes from all sides there will always be that which causes you to doubt your position and it may be convincing i mean in the moment you might start to lose some confidence here's nehemiah and he's standing before these jews they're all listening to the mocking they're all listening to the ridicule and i imagine maybe some of their faces or their responses were like oh well that sounds kind of legitimate he they're right we don't have very many here nehemiah did you get your paperwork i sure hope you did Maybe Nehemiah is thinking, I don't know, if, if there's a tinge of doubt, thinking, what if I'm wrong here? But it is in that moment when your sand ballot won't stop talking that you have to shut out the loudest voice and listen to the right voice. You have to shut out the voice that's trying to convince you that you're not in the right place and you shouldn't even be here and you shouldn't be serving and God can't use you and you're not the right guy or girl for the job. You've got to shut that voice out and you've got to listen to the right voice. Because a lot of God's people fold under the pressure of doubt. And instead of operating by faith, they operate by fear. Instead of operating by facts, they start operating based on feelings. And if you subject yourself to feelings or fear instead of facts or faith, then you will probably fold. You'll probably trip because you weren't ready for the doubt. Now listen, the doubt being cast on God's people in our culture and even more specifically at the members of Eastside Baptist Church in our community, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, maybe even sometimes from each other, it's strong. And it's coming from all sides, from people we know, from the culture, from ourselves. And it's saying things like this, are you sure it's God's plan to be so committed three services a week? I mean, are you sure about that? I mean, we only go to church at our, uh, once a week at our church. We only have one service, and we're growing, and we're doing great. I mean, come on. Or they're casting doubt, saying things like, why are you going through that health issue or that health crisis? I mean, I thought if you followed God and he loves you, he won't let stuff like that happen to you. If God is good, why do bad things happen to good people? Why are you struggling? 
Why are they struggling? I thought you just all served a good God. And to to the teenagers, they would say things like, why are you different? Why do you feel like you have to look different? Why are you dressing different? Wouldn't it be easier just to fit in with the crowd? And a a subject that I think needs to be dealt with more and uh, and more in our culture, you know, they're saying things like, "What's what's wrong with a drink or two? What's wrong with social, social drinking? You know, what's wrong with a little bit of alcohol every once in a while? Everyone does it. And as long as you don't get drunk, I don't see the problem. And doubt starts to come in on a position you used to be strong on, and we ought to be strong on when it comes to drinking. And yet I know churches everywhere where their churches are infiltrated with people that are into the social drinking scene even on church activities. God forbid that it happens here. They'll come and they'll say to our church, about our church, you know, that music is so ancient. I mean, you need something more relevant to the culture. If you're going to have a crowd, if you're going to reach the millennials or reach the young people, hey, listen, I feel the pressure. I was talking to people just this week about it. I mean, you feel the pressure. It's hard to compete when all the other stuff is going on, and they've got the smoke and the lights and the lasers and the rising platforms and, and I mean, free skydiving and whatever else they're doing, I don't know. For invitation, here. They're saying things like, the King James is so archaic, nobody understands it. You need to update it and you'll attract the young people. Listen, there's a lot of noise. And there's enough out there that if we give it a hearing, we will find ourselves living by fear instead of faith. We'll find ourselves living by feelings instead of facts. So what do we do in the face of mudslinging, this was fun to write, mudslinging, doubt-building loudmouths? Makes me feel bad to say that. Like bad, like ooh, that was bad. Here's what we do. We do what Nehemiah did. We allow God's word to shape our answers. And I want you to consider Nehemiah's three responses in the face of his doubters. Because I think he gives us an excellent template. Response number one to the doubters, he says, the God of heaven will give us success in this endeavor. He says, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. And here's what Nehemiah is doing. The first response to his doubters is he's recalling God's promises. He's recalling God's promises. And you say, well, what promise is that? Well, look back at Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Just turn back one chapter. So here's Nehemiah. Again, he's saying, hey, our God is going to prosper us. The God of heaven, he will prosper us. Well, I want you to look at what he prayed back in verses 8 and 9, chapter 1. It says, he's praying, remember? He says, remember, I beseech thee to God the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. Had that already happened to Israel? Yeah, it had already had happened. They were already in Babylon, and they're trying to make their way back. But look what he says in verse 9. But, he says, this is God speaking, but if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments... And do them, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. So don't you think that in Nehemiah 2, when he says, the God of heaven, he will prosper us, he's thinking about a promise back in chapter 1, verse 9, when God had told them that even if you're scattered abroad and to the uttermost part of heaven, if you will hear my commandments and keep them and do them, I will bring you from thence and bring you back to the place that I have chosen to put my name there. You know what he's talking about? Jerusalem. And Nehemiah has just recalled God's promises. In other words, in the middle of the fear, in the middle of the strong feelings, He doesn't start to get online and Google and say, how do I answer my accusers? 
He doesn't get on the prayer chain and say, y'all pray for me. I need some help answering my accusers. No, he goes directly to God's promises. He goes right back to God's word. And he says, no, my best answer in the face of fear and threats and doubt is the promises of God. We have to do the same thing. And while you're trying to raise your children, you need to remember promises like Proverbs 29, 17 that says, correct thy son and he shall give thee rest. Yea, he shall... Give delight unto thy soul. And in the middle of it, and you look at that little face and you say, but they're so adorable. They're so cute. And it's so hard to say, to say, have you found it's really easy to say um, yes to other people's kids, but to yours you have no problem saying no. But in the middle of it, you're looking at that face and you're saying, boy, I have, I have, I've gone to the lengths that the Bible says. I have not spared the rod. I have taken the discipline to the level the Bible says, not in an abusive way, but the Bible says it. Use a rod. And I don't want to use a rod, and I've tried so much, I'm not even sure that it's working. In those moments when you have doubt, you have to go back to God's promises, or you'll talk yourself out of doing what's right. When you have the doubt and you have the fear and you have the feelings, you have to set them aside and say, no, I'm going to exercise faith right now. No, I'm going to go based on God's facts right now. Not my feelings, not my fear. When it comes to giving and and you're trying to find two nickels to rub together, you have to remember a promise like Luke 6, 38, when it says, give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, shall men give unto your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet or give out, with all it shall be measured to you again. And when it doesn't look like the, the numbers add up and you're not sure how you can even pay your tithe or how you could give to missions or how you could give to the building fund... You have to stop acting on fear and stop acting on your feelings and act on faith and know what God says, if I put him first and I give my tithe and I give, he will take care of my needs. Like Matthew 6.33, you have to trust in God's provision but seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. When it doesn't add up and it doesn't make sense and there's no logical reason to believe that it will happen, You have to exercise faith. You have to go based on God's facts, not your feelings or fear. When it comes to young people, when it comes to obeying your parents, and it seems hard and it seems unreasonable, you need to remember a promise like Exodus 20.12. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. That's a promise. You want a good life? You want a long, blessed, good life? Children in here, you want a long, blessed, good life? There's a promise in God's word. And when you don't feel like it and you're afraid or you've got doubts, you're not really sure if it's even worth it or, you know, what's going on, you just obey your parents. And according to God's promises, he'll bless you for it. We have to, base, we have to exercise uh, God's promise, it, this exercise of going back to God's promise when it comes to forgiveness for ourselves. You know, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in the middle of it, I'm telling you, I've done things before and I've sinned before and I felt like there's no way God can forgive this. I mean, even just sometimes you wake up and you don't feel like you're forgiven. Just this morning, I, I was in my office and I'm praying and I'm telling you, I didn't have the feeling. And I told God, if I'm going to preach about acting on faith and acting on facts, not my feelings and fear, then I'm just going to have to take your word for it that you say, if I will just confess it, that you will forgive me and leave it at that. Because sometimes we beat ourselves up over and over and over for sins that we've already confessed and God has already forgiven. So why are we the ones bringing it up again? We have to act on facts and faith, not feelings and fear. When it comes to trusting God, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. Here's the promise. In all thy ways acknowledge him and what? He shall direct thy paths. 
So you don't know what your next step is. You don't know where God wants you to be. Or you're not sure about a decision you're supposed to be making. Well, God has the answers. You just need to trust the Lord. I was thinking about revenge. I think it's a problem for some people that hold on to things. Well, we have a promise in Romans 12, 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but give place, rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Here's Nehemiah in his position where these guys were dealing with him unfairly and they were being unjust in their treatment of him. And if he had wanted to, he could have exacted revenge on them in that moment. But, in, but he's not that kind of a guy. He doesn't let his feelings and his, his fear get the best of him. He acts on facts and faith. And he says, nope, God is my, avenge, my avenger. God will avenge me. Uh, will, he is vengeance is mine, he says. I will repay, saith the Lord. God is the one. It is in his hands and I will leave it in his Instead of responding by fear and feelings when doubt comes, we've got to respond by facts and faith. The strength of our faith comes from the fact, the facts found in God's word. That was his first response. His second response to the doubters is this. He says, because he says, God will prosper us, therefore we as servants will arise and build. So the second response uh, is just do right. Just do right. You just keep doing what you know you're supposed to do. Nehemiah just acted. He didn't wait. He didn't spend more time thinking about it. He didn't wait to get a feel from the people. And he didn't take a survey and say, now you listen to what they're saying. So let's talk about this. Let's, let's hash this out today. No, he didn't even have to pray about this. And you know, sometimes we kind of clothe or, or cloak our decision making in prayer when really there's no reason to pray about obedience. You realize that? Obedience is something that we just do. I don't have to ask God if it's his will for me to obey. It's his will for me to obey. And sometimes we kind of cloak our decision making or obedience to God in this spiritual cloak of prayer when really we know what to do. It's God's will that we do it. And for some of us, it's just time to act. Just do right. If you know it's God's will, why wait? I mean, if you know it's God's will in Hebrews 10 not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together, then, then don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. If you know that it's the duty of a disciple to tell the lost about Christ, then why aren't you? Just do it. If, you're, if you know that God tells us to pray, why aren't you praying? I mean, you see, there are things we don't have to pray about. They are God's will for us. The list could go on and on and on. And I've read a verse in Psalm 119.60 that stands out to me. It says, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. If you have God's promise, obey his word. Do it right away. Don't let some loudmouth doubter create fear and convince you that you're wrong. The longer you give him a hearing, the more likely he will be to affect your obedience. What's amazing is we have the word of God backing up our faith, but we'll often allow the words of somebody else carry more authority. Just do right. Don't wait. Nehemiah said, listen, we have God's hand. We have his blessings. We're just going to rise and build. And then his third response to the doubters is this. He ends it by saying, you have no portion or right nor memorial in Jerusalem. He's basically saying, by the way, you have no part in this rebuilding effort and you, know, have no, you have no part in the blessings. So the third response is this, to the doubters, remember their end. Remember where they end up compared to where you end up. When you start looking around and you start maybe being envious of their position or you start to believe what they're saying, here's Nehemiah, he's refusing to let outsiders determine his actions. They had nothing to do with God. They didn't care about Jehovah. They didn't care about the walls. They didn't care about Jerusalem. They had no heritage. They had no legacy there. So they hadn't wept over those walls. They hadn't begged God to bring them back to build them up. They wouldn't be living there once the walls were built. So why would Nehemiah listen to them and allow them to influence something they knew nothing about? The same goes for us. Why would we subject ourselves to a world that doesn't care about our God. 
Why would we let them define how committed to church is too committed? Right? Why would we let them tell us what to wear or how to dress? Why would we let them dictate what kind of music we use in our services? They have no right or portion or interest in God's house. So why would we pattern what we do in God's house after the ones that live outside the walls? Why would we give them the controller to our lives and let them determine what we do? I mean, in the end, when Nehemiah and Israel would be safely behind those walls, the enemies of God weren't going to be. And it reminds me of Psalm 73. I referred to it a couple of Sundays ago when Asaph was kind of bemoaning the prosperity of the wicked. You remember this? He's saying, look how strong they are. Listen to how cocky they are. He didn't use that word. It's another Hebrew translation. They don't have problems like we do, he's saying. In, 70, in Psalm 73, 9, Asaph writes, they set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. You see that happening here in Nehemiah too. He's saying things like, does God even know? I mean, what's he doing? I mean, when I thought, and he's saying, when I thought about it, it was too painful for me. But then he says in Psalm 73, 17, he said, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. See, Nehemiah, that's what he's doing, and so should we. He's saying, you, in the end, you have no right here. You have no portion here. So stop taking your cues, folks, from the world. Their end is not like ours. Now, I want their end to be like ours. I want them to have the same end as I do. When I cross a lost person in the street or at the store, I want them to end up where I do because I end up in the best place, and that's with God in heaven. And we should have a heart that they end up there too. This is not us standing up here saying, yeah, let's just forget them and forsake them. No, that's not it. We want everybody to experience the end we get to experience. But if they refuse, and if they never receive, why would we allow them to dictate the kind of life we're living? They have no portion, nor right, no interest, no heritage, no legacy in Jerusalem. So stop operating by fear and feelings and live according to facts and faith. Because we serve a God who's never gotten it wrong. And it may not make sense in the moment, but trust the facts. And the doubters may be loud, but don't submit to your feelings. And it may not appear possible at all, just operate by faith. And it might be intimidating. We, we've not been, we have not been given the spirit of fear, though. If we will operate by facts and faith instead of feelings and fear, we will see the work of God accomplished, both in our lives and at Eastside Baptist Church. And it comes down to this. Are you going to allow fear and feelings tell you how to live? Or are you going to push those aside and go with the facts? You're going to set those aside and live by faith. If you don't, the doubters are going to trip you up. It's time to set all the other stuff aside. Put facts and faith over feelings and fear. Let's all stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.